Uh, we are actually online right now. Welcome to Tomorrow's World Now. Uh, we've been looking forward to having all of you here, uh, in fact, for a whole week. Uh, it's good to be here. Our topic today is an exciting one. I hope that you will stick around for uh, hearing about it and for what we have to say about it. When I say we, let me refer here to my distinguished panel. Uh, sitting with me here at the table on my far left, we have Mr. Ken Frank. He is a uh, professor for Living University and a minister in our church, and uh, good to have you here, Mr. Frank. Sitting between the two of us, we'll try to treat you nicely since you're stuck there. Uh, we have Mr. Dexter Wakefield. He's a business manager here at Living Church of God and also uh, a longtime minister himself uh, from Florida. I know you you ministered in Florida a long time. You from Florida? No, South Carolina originally. Ah, South Carolina. All mm -hmm. right. So pretty pretty close to home. Uh, our topic today is nuns. And I always feel bad when I say nuns out loud because I'm afraid people think of the Catholic ladies and habits. We're not talking about that. We're talking about those who don't declare any particular religious affiliation. So the nuns' belief in God as a moral safeguard, and then Catholicism out evangelizing evangelicals, and actually we might get pretty broad on that particular topic. So that's our title today. We have several topics we hope to cover. As always, things get a little bit fuzzy, and so our discussion of one topic might bleed in perhaps into, a, into another topic as well. But still, we do have a highlight of topics that we plan on addressing. The first of those is the rise of the nuns. And even though I just talked about it, every time I say it, and that's the way you see the news often picturing today, the rise of the nuns, I do picture a giant army of Catholic nuns wielding, <laughs> I don't know, yardsticks or something, you know, coming at, attacking the Hun perhaps. But no, we're not talking about that. We're talking about this rise in our population of those who don't declare any particular religious affiliation at all. It's a relatively new phenomenon here in the United States, and uh, surely not just in the United States, elsewhere also. There were some interesting articles out in the news about that. Uh, for instance, a Pew Research Journal had published in April of uh, this year, April 7th, 2017, an article titled, Why People with No Religion are projected to decline as a share of the world's population. And I have to highlight something here at the beginning. We say uh, people with no religion, we talk about the nuns, but frankly, it's a bit confusing. I don't know about you guys, it just seems to me that the media is excited about this idea that maybe there's an anti-religion wave that's sweeping the land or something. And as a result, they keep throwing out terms like the nuns, they talk about atheists, they talk about agnostics. And as much as I'm really, I enjoy uh, philosophical discussions sometimes, and so I understand some of those terms, but it is getting confusing. Could some of you shed some light? What are these different subgroups in the culture that the news keeps talking about? Well, it, um, worldwide, the number of people engaged in religion is growing. It's just that the number of people who are uh, apathetic about religion is uh, growing slightly in the industrialized nations, but worldwide, as a percentage of population, it's declining. Hmm. So world religion or people who are associated with religion are growing overall throughout the world, but there is some decline in the U.S. and Europe as well. Okay, so how so so there are these numbers, they're very dynamic. All the more it's very important to understand what these categories really mean. Who are they actually uh, talking about? Uh, can you help us out, Mr. Frank? Yeah, about 23% of Americans now describe themselves as nuns. And what's happening is that you can declare yourself by choice or by ascription in an article by Mark Silk, who the nuns really are in religion news. Ascription is your faith that you grow up in. So you were born Baptist or 
um, Anglican, and so therefore you were ascribed to be a Baptist or an Anglican. Hmm. What's happening now is that people saying, I'm not of that by choice. That, that does not mean that they do not believe in God, does not mean that they don't have any religion. Some of them do pray, some attend religious worship, hmm. but they do not want to be affiliated with any particular denomination because of a loss of trust in authority figures, in part. That's one reason. Right. You know, it's funny you say that. My wife and I were driving down the road just yesterday, and I think it was on the way to work, and there was a bumper sticker that someone had, and it just said the word Jesus in big letters, but you couldn't read the fine letters, but we were stuck behind him in traffic, so I got to read the fine letters. And it said something like, uh, are you tired of religion? Don't trust in religion, just trust Jesus right. or something, and get rid of religion. And it seems like what I'm saying, what I hear you saying is there's still a, a desire for spirituality. There's a desire for something like that, but people are simply casting off a variety of restraints in terms of what they label themselves as. I think that's a lot of truth to that. And uh, you know, a lot of it, of course, is people are dissatisfied with the big mainstream religions. Mm, right. If you go to uh, some of these uh, places, what you will hear is more sociology than religion or more psychology than religion. And a lot of the ministers there are really um, sociologists in a clerical collar. And so they are, uh, people will say, well, I could read a self-help book <laughs> and find out or listen to a political program and right. find out more because they're speaking in the language of sociology and psychology as opposed to the language of the Bible. Hmm, interesting. They, they separate between religion, which is the formal observance of a faith, versus right. spirituality. Mm -hmm. And the nuns today are more open to the idea of uh, eclectic faith. They're willing to explore ideas of other religions, not only just Christian. And, and give it some credence. You know, it reminds me of the judges. Uh, so much in our modern culture remind me of the, the, the book of Judges in the Bible. And the famous lines, we talk about them actually a lot amongst ourselves, but where it talks about how there was no particular king, and as a result, every man did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone just did what they felt was right. And increasingly, as you've seen, in terms of talking about why these things might be happening, I know that's part of what I thought about, is there's been a general societal trend to distrust authority. And personally, I think all spheres of life, certainly religious, you can't ignore the uh, child abuse scandals that have rocked the Catholic Church. We won't go into detail. We actually had, I don't know if you all ever saw that letter, someone actually wrote us in the Tomorrow's World magazine. It was a number of years ago, but it was a nun. And I, must say, I say N-U-N in this particular case, not N-O-N-E, who actually wrote in and was donating to us because she was so frustrated with her own church. She was 81 years old, and she'd just seen it, in her opinion, continue to decline. And so she appreciated the truth that we were saying, actually, about you know the Catholic Church and religion in general. But you see this general distrust of authority figures broadly across, even in the small scale in the family. And as a result, uh, people are out shopping. They still hold on. Why do you think they still hold on, then? If they let go of these cultural restrictions for their particular denomination, why hold on to spirituality at all? What, what's your take? Well, I'm not sure everybody's holding on that much. Mm. Um, I think it's a complicated thing. It's not just one or two things. We have uh, the secularization of society, and that's moving people who are, say, marginally enthusiastic about their faith. It's moving them more towards um, just secular society. So we, um, if you 
for instance, if you go to a university, well, you're much more, much less likely to be involved in your religion than if you than if you don't. It's not because mm. you're more rational. It's because education throughout society is designed to deprive you of your faith. Uh, even our our, our schools. Um, high school, middle school, elementary schools, they have a very um, secular approach to things. So many people are now looking, if they are of faith, they're looking to put their kids into other types of schools. Right. So I think, I think that religion is being undermined throughout society and it is affecting even the religious. Right. You know, uh, funny you bring that up. One of my sons, my oldest son, is currently taking a uh, philosophy class as part of his humanities for his, uh, for his degree. And it's ethics. Uh, he and I talk about this sort of stuff all the time, and so they've just started. And I'm really wondering to see where it goes because so many, at least I remember back in the 90s, let alone what it must be like today, so many of those professors seemed like that was kind of their goal was really to to deconstruct whatever it is you brought in so they could just build it in its own image. And in that particular case, I already see him leaning towards the kind of questions that would help you do that if you were interested in, in doing that, just casting aside all your previous ideas. I think that's why people are described as nuns, because they cannot answer the big questions. Who are we? How hmm. did we get here? Where are we going? What does this life mean? And we stand in wonder at natural phenomena like this past uh, week's eclipse. Hmm. We wonder, how is it that we can see that exactly as it is? And they look at the universe and they wonder, what is the meaning of life? The problem is it's also got this nun movement has an anti-intellectual strain to it. Hmm. It's more feeling-oriented. Don't tell us about doctrine. We don't, we don't want preaching. We want to know how do we relate to each other. It's often very humanistic. You know, I, I, I like what you just said because a lot of people, we don't, we don't, the, the world wants to characterize it as the opposite, that somehow what you're seeing in society today is a very intellectual movement, that it's that particular direction. But there was some evidence, and I can't remember, maybe it was one of you several shows ago, and I can't recall. Hope you watch all of our programs. They're all archived. You can, you can check them out. Uh, we're just as handsome in those as, as we are in these. But there was one about how a lot of atheists and secularists, I think it was one of the programs, they still, though, long for an afterlife. And many of them still say they believe in some kind of afterlife, even though they've no ground for justifying its existence, which to me sounds that it's not so much an, a, a desire to be more uh, educational, or sorry, more intellectual, but rather a desire to cast off the things you don't want, restrictions, uh, moral guidelines and dictums, but retain all the things you do, the comfort and the good feelings uh, of associating with one another and being called a good person and having something taken care of you mm -hmm. when you die. I think there's still a spiritual yearning in the human person, that they need to fill that gap with something. If it's not going to be a divine personage, it'll be something else. It could be their own mind. Right. It could be a philosophy. But they're going to try to fill that gap with something else. Right. And that's an important point, that um, there's a, about secularism, there's a great emptiness about yep. it. And people try to fill it with a lot of things, uh, with movements and um, uh, social causes or the arts or something, all of which is wonderful if these are parts of people's lives. But if people are strictly secular or just atheists or whatever we want to call them, um, I often sense that there is an emptiness there. And the, the person who can come along and fill that emptiness, if that person comes along and we say that there will be one prophetically, 
Will there be someone who can uh, get great power from it? Right. It and can we'll be actually, exploited. Yeah, uh, hopefully we'll get to the uh, uh, question towards the end that actually mm-hmm. will uh, bring up some of those ideas. We do have a question on YouTube uh, that I will mention. By the way, it gives me a chance to tell all of you, we're available on Facebook, but we're also available on YouTube. We're streaming on both, so you can check us out in uh, whichever is your favorite medium. question was submitted on YouTube. Aren't many disillusioned with the <clears throat> denominational errors and maybe the hypocrisy that they experienced in their parents' churches. So is it possible that some growing up in this faith uh, are exposed to uh, a certain amount of hypocrisy and simply that is is turning them off? Where Would that mean in the past there was less hypocrisy or in the past the <coughs> options seemed less available? That well, is one of the most <coughs> common complaints among young people hmm. who leave a faith in that they have watched everything from the pews, so to speak, and they've seen things that did not agree with what was being preached among the membership or even among the clergy, and it created a distrust for them. And so therefore, it became a personal me and God, mm-hmm. uh, like um, the movie um, The Alligator, or The Australian, um, uh, who uh, fought alligators or crocodiles. Oh, Crocodile right. Dundee. Oh, I can remember right. in one scene... He was telling the woman, just me and God, we'd we be mates. I so remember th- that. Yeah. I am old enough to remember that, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Was, so, a, was that in the 80s? Congratulations, yeah, 80s. so an 80s oh, movie. Good job. You're, you're, Good job you're fessing up here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You don't have a knife on you, right? You remember he brings out the yeah, big knife? Yeah, huge knife. Do you? Yeah. yeah. Well, well, I do remember it. There were three movies of that series. Yeah, the Theology of Crocodile Dundee. Yeah. You know, we, we, bring, you, we bring you the world. Uh, no, part of what I see in that is it's interesting here we've been talking about a movement where people are moving towards a uh, a relationship to religion and theology that doesn't make moral demands on them. And if it is related to the fact that in their church environment, what they saw were those who didn't actually prescribe to the moral demands they preached. It would sort of make sense that maybe that's the part they cast aside. But it does lead me actually to our next topic. And I, I thought that's actually... Thank you, YouTube questioner, for this particular segue. Um there are some articles out concerning the so-called persecution of atheists. And I understand that we're broadcast all over the world. There really are some countries where those who don't believe in any sort of God uh, may actually experience real persecution. Uh, But the idea that there's some sort of persecution in the United States uh, strikes me always as as funny. Uh, But the article touches on some of why that might be perceived. And so when I say the article, I'm referring in particular to a Huffington Post article. Not a big fan of the Huffington Post, but they do actually write some stuff that it's worth reading at least uh, you know, with a grain of salt every once in a while. And they actually had an article uh, this August, August 8, 2017, titled, Anti-Atheist Prejudice is Entrenched Around the Globe Even Among Atheists. So uh, it's not necessarily that they're being persecuted because of... Uh, uh, because those who aren't like them, but even amongst atheists, they're finding there's a great deal of lack of trust for other atheists. And there was a quote in that particular article, if I can uh, get to that real quickly. I have it here. Here we go. Uh, let's see. This is from, uh, whoops, William Gervais, who says, uh, from the University of Kentucky, says, even in places that are currently quite overtly secular, people still seem to intuitively hold on to the belief that religion is a moral safeguard. Uh, why might, might that be? In an age where we're increasingly secular, where it seems like all the levels of the land are either actively and publicly casting off religion, 
uh, and religious beliefs, or they are casting it off practically and they're simply just paying lip service to it, why would there be still this inherent uh, lack of trust in those who don't profess any kind of religion or faith? First of all, it's, it's kind of hard to, see, at least living in the United States, see atheists as victims. Now, perhaps if you're living in a Muslim country where it's illegal to, to profess atheism or to speak against Allah or things of that nature, but uh, we simply don't see much of that here. Here we have militant atheists. Mm -hmm. uh, they're out to um, uh, disprove and, and, and attack, and, and the seculars here in this country really are um, very much anti-Christian in, in many situations. So... Christians find themselves often marginalized in what they believe in, in many aspects of society. And their, their children are subjected to these things as well. Faith is under attack right. in the United States. So it's hard to see atheists as being um, victims. I do think that the lack of definite moral standards is something that can negatively affect trust in, with many people. Um, for instance, we have, um, let's say Genesis 3.5. Uh, 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 Adam was going to be like God, knowing good and evil, like God. It is a God that defines right and wrong. Yet you brought up a little while ago an ethicist or ethics. That has become our definition of right and wrong. It's secular divine law, man worshiping himself and his own reason uh, in order to decide what is right and wrong. So when you have people who are on the shifting sands of human reason as far as the foundation of their definition of right and wrong, well, who do you trust? What can you trust them for? What can you trust these people to do? Right. Whereas if you have a person whose faith is based on a rock, say on the foundation of God's commandments, then you have a pretty good idea of where they're coming from and what they're doing. I think that's something that can affect trust in terms of people of religion as opposed to people who have none. Hmm. Religion is seen in the world today as involving two primary parts, the faith and the practice. The faith can involve the teachings of that particular religion. And then the practice, and what's happened in our world today is that people often look at religion only from the side of practice. So people, even of non-Christian religions, are taught certain values of human behavior. For example, the law against murder or a teaching against murder, that's common in many religions. So that is why um, people are viewing the practice, the practical side of human behavior and mixing it up with ethics and morality. Hmm. And these are the terms that are often being used loosely associated. Right. You, you were talking a little bit earlier about people saying, well, um, I'm a, an atheist and I think I'm a good person. Well, why do you right. think you're a good person? Well, I don't kill, I don't yeah. steal, I don't commit adultery, I don't lie, right. um, I don't covet. Oh, you keep the Ten Commandments. Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> uh, maybe that is what constitutes, <laughs> constitutes good in the sight of all humanity. It's just that the Bible tells you specifically what it is, and right. you have to go with it. See, that, and that, that is what I face, and I, I, I enjoy interacting with, uh, with atheists. In fact, let me invite, if there's any atheist, someone who doesn't believe in God, who's wandering through Facebook or YouTube, and you just stop and say, well, look at those three well-dressed guys. I think I'll watch this for a while. <laughs> feel free and leave a comment. Feel free and engage with us. We wouldn't mind hearing from your questions at all. But that's often the pushback you'll get. I see this in debates with William Lane Craig and others, uh, and Sam Harris, the, the neuroscientist who believes he can found moral beliefs without, without religion of any sort. 
is they'll say, well, how can you say that you can only be good if you're religious? Because I, I'm an upstanding person in my community. Uh, I'm faithful to my wife. You know, I, I give generously. And one, you would argue, well, that's great. No one's saying you can't be good. But the question is, one, how do we know that's good? Uh, I actually did a telecast on this topic called uh, Who Says? I'm not sure if you could find that on the search. If you type in Who Says, that's going to bring up a lot of different searches. But it's an old telecast I did that what backs that morality and no one's saying you, you, you cannot believe in gravity, and you're still going to fall to the ground if those laws are still in place. But here's the question, and this is really what the article hits at the heart, which is even atheists aren't trusting atheists. Even, even atheists who don't believe themselves that there is a God, and there is a God dictating a moral standard, when they know other atheists, there is a bias that some studies are starting to show, apparently, that show they just don't feel they can trust them as well. Uh, they've cast aside the idea of a creator, a moral being who's in charge of all of us. Why do you think that even they, deep down, find they can't trust fellow atheists or wouldn't vote for them, uh, given the choice? Well, the Bible has an answer. It's in Romans 1.28, and it says that uh, because they did not retain God in their knowledge, um, they were given over to a reprobate mind. It also says that where there is no revelatory knowledge, the people cast off restraint. Hmm. Basically, if you can decide what's right and wrong for yourself, and you do, then well, what can people trust you for? Mm -hmm. uh, your judgment as to what's right and wrong and your own personal ethics, that may be restricted by what the law, the law of the land requires, what you can be put in jail for, which is the case for many people today. Right. And that was my point on the Who Says program is that if the law of the land is meant to be our guide for what's right and wrong, that is simply what's legal and not legal, than in Nazi Germany, uh, you know, forking over Jews, you know, for the sake of persecution and getting them to concentration camps. That would have been technically the moral thing to do because those were the laws of the day. Uh, how can we rest on that as a moral foundation? You can't. There's, there's no foundation there. Yeah. Ethics and morals can be very fluid, and they seem to be changing as time mm. goes along. And people will talk about values, and the atheists will say, well, yes, but I have high values in regard to human life. From the biblical perspective, there's a difference between values and virtues. And in the Bible, Christians are trying to live by a higher standard that is divine, whereas these folks want to live by standards that are set by human uh, standards in their particular culture. Right. That's actually one of the things I think is uh, fascinating. There's a debate by uh, Christian apologist William Lane Craig and this uh, scientist atheist Sam Harris. And that's part of what's highlighted in that is they keep talking about, well, how to achieve what's good and the rest, but what really is good? What makes something good or not? And if it's just simply what we currently value, if it only mm -hmm. rests upon what we think, then really what is good just depends on what's fashionable mm -hmm. at the time. And part of why I think atheists, some of these things have been shown that even atheists don't always trust other atheists, is because deep down, if you believe you don't have any kind of accountability for your actions, then we learn even as children to project our minds in terms of others and understand what they're doing, that do they have any accountability? They really don't. Uh, there was an atheist, I wish I brought it, I didn't think of it, this program, but there's a, a guy that commented on a forum once, and he was an atheist, and he was tired of his fellow atheists uh, claiming that there really is a good and a bad. He said, there's not. Why do we keep trying to get along with theists, people who believe in God, saying there's a good and a bad, when really we have no moral boundaries whatsoever? He says, you think there's good and bad, you want to be faithful, hey, that's fine, but while you're at work, 
I'm going to be at your house committing adultery with your wife and trying to create more children because that's what my genes tell me to do. Uh, he was very upfront about it, and many secular humanists, or at least not secular humanists, but atheists, have drawn the same conclusion, even though it, it's abhorrent to them. They recognize we have no foundation for morality if there is not an yeah, eternal divine They're casting off restraint. Right. Uh, um, what people say now, and to follow up a little bit further on what you're saying, is that morality is socially constructed. Right, right. Morality is socially constructed. Right. Well, just read the newspaper and look what happens. Mm -hmm. When people decide what is right and wrong for themselves, uh, right. we have terrible situations. The fact is, moral law exists. Right. And we call it divine law because God tells us what it is. Mm -hmm. But there are certain things that simply do not change within society. Right. And if you break these laws, whether you are a secularist and call it a moral law, you're uh, like us, call it divine law, God's holy, righteous, just law, that it simply creates problems. And you could re read about these problems over and over again in your newspaper, and it's because people are making the mistake of breaking God's law. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what some people don't seem to understand, those who argue for this sort of social construct of morality, which is if you take that as true, then way back in the pre-Civil War South, slavery should be something morally acceptable because socially it's, it's constructed as fine. During the Holocaust, that's morally acceptable. And maybe we're, we've, they say we've grown past those things. But what defines it as growing past those things if really morality is just defined by the social structure at the time? And who's to say those things won't come in vogue again and therefore become morally good again? If, if we're just abandoning the virtues that an eternal God who exists does teach us and does say these are the right, these are the wrong, these reflect my nature, uh, then morality really is just whatever is currently preferable uh, by the highest number of people, if, if even the highest number of people. Our society is experimenting with morals. Yeah. It does not have an anchor that is permanent and inflexible. And they will move with the times. And look how things have changed in regard to morality. Let's just take premarital pregnancy. How the, the opinions of the common people has changed in the past couple of decades. Right. Or abortion. Or now same-sex marriage. Fluid, fluidity, moral relativism. There has to be a standard, and the Bible does give us an absolute. Right. And that's what people don't want. The absolute. Right, exactly. The shifting sands of human reason. Mm. And uh, frail it is. It is. I, I'm a big fan of human reason. I hate to see it put down, but it really is true because reason is always grounded in what is your set of assumptions. There's always a foundation on which you have to build, and their foundation is just sand. It's just, it's just nothing. Those who claim that we've finally grown because now we're tolerant of homosexual marriages, so-called, and we're tolerant of uh, those who are confused about even whether they're boy or girl, they'll seem to understand that if morality is socially constructed, then what's to change a hundred years from now when suddenly those things are out of fashion again, because then it would be just as right as supposedly this is now. From what I hear you saying, and this does a great segue to our third topic, is that if there really is no God, there is no grounding of any kind of morality one way or the other. And so that brings us to the question, then how do we have any good sense that there is a God? Uh, how do we really know? There's so many forces in this world today trying to tell us there's not one. Uh, the popular scientists of the day just seem to take great pleasure in going on television, uh, being on YouTube to say there is no God, there's no reason to believe in one, which is kind of odd in a country where supposedly they're persecuted, is that you can go and broadcast your views everywhere and be celebrated and pay great sums to speak. 
But does God really exist? I, I, I can... Well, let me confirm. Uh, Mr. Frank, do you believe God exists? Of course. Uh, okay, do you believe God exists? All three of us, all right, we all believe God exists. But here's all what theists. I'd like to know. We're all, we're all theists here. Uh, but <laughs> that said, why? Uh, and is it important first, is it important to actually prove for yourself that is the case? Uh, many people grow up just believing in God because their parents did. Or I actually knew one girl who grew up not believing in God because her parents didn't. Uh, why is it important to take the time to prove it, even if you already believe it? I just want to um, mention that perhaps our viewers would like to go to Tomorrow's World, um, to the, um, to the uh, website there. And there's a booklet called The Real God, Proofs and Promises. It'll be a real good one to read, and we'll go over some of, a lot more details, some of the things that we might talk about today. But we could just list off several things. Um, the creation demands a creator. Uh, we can look out and see that every day. And, mm-hmm. But when you get into the minutia of science, when it looks into these things in great detail, they're finding it more and more that they cannot explain it. It's the, how all of these things came to pass, mathematically or scientifically. Something had to happen. Um, that life demands a life giver. That life cannot come from anything but life, and they have not been able to figure out yet even how a simple protein can form by itself. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Yeah, all, the, all their hypotheses for how these uh, chemicals could have formed even a RNA, which is even simpler uh, than mm-hmm. DNA, uh, they really can't get, quote-unquote, life or even something that they can call quasi-life going on its own. When you actually investigate, there will be studies that say that they can, but when you actually read the studies and go into the details you find there was a great deal of intelligent involvement in that. They just kind of set the circumstances just right uh, to kick things off. Uh, yeah, there really is no answer. At least not yet, there's no answer for that. We were talking about earlier about moral law. Mm-hmm. It exists. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to make go away. You can reason around it. You can try to socially deconstruct it, but it just keeps coming back. It's one of those realities that you just can't get away from. But law demands a lawgiver. Who created these things and why is the universe in this subjective way created this way? Right, right. In the history of Christianity, the question of does God exist is cyclical. It comes and goes through the centuries it's because it's an eternal question. And the reason it needs to be settled by every human being is that something is going to happen in life in which that person is going to be challenged or faith is going to be challenged. And if it's not built on a rock, they will find it will crumble. And even Christian theologians uh, end up losing their faith. Uh, Some of the prominent authors of our own time who went to theology school, but because they couldn't answer the question, why does God allow evil in the world and so much suffering, they end up losing faith. And so Mm -hmm. that question has to be established and firmed up in a person's mind for those tough times and tough questions. Just follow up on <clears throat> something that you, that you said there. Um, often our uh, atheist friends will define faith as belief without evidence. Oh, that frustrates me to know. That is an atheist definition of faith. Please don't get sucked into that because the question <laughs> itself, the definition is designed to give them an advantage. The theological definition is more like informed belief. And right. that's, that's what we're talking about now, that you have to know what you believe and why, and it is an, an informed choice that you make. Yeah, I've heard it. Uh, I think that actually this will work into a Living Church News article that's coming out uh, in, the, in the next article here, some a publication we have in our church. But that faith is, is, is more than belief. It's richer. And of course, we could do a whole program on what that is. But in terms of a brief summary I heard once that I really appreciated was that it was trust... <laughs> 
and commitment in the in things for which you have good cause to place trust and commitment. Uh, you look at ancient Israel, they clearly didn't, while they believed there was a God at certain points, they saw his miracles, how could they deny it? It's hard to deny two walls of water on either side as you're marching out of Egypt. Uh, story in the Old Testament, if you're not familiar with it, it's worth reading. But for all that evidence, they never fully put their trust and their confidence in that God, and so as a result, it all leaked away. The faith is that there is a step involved, but it's not what people call blind faith, which that's what you're talking about. We have no cause to believe in something. You're just going to put blind faith. That's the lottery. That's going to your local convenience store and, and believing somehow you're going to get a billion dollars in this week's draw when you have no reason to believe that. Uh, you look at the apostles in the Bible. They said, look, this, this Jesus Christ, we touched him. We handled him. You know, we have cause to believe these things. Uh, but faith does involve a commitment in those things, but it's not a commitment to things you, you don't have any good evidence for or a reason to believe in. No, people believe in UFOs, too. <laughs> right. And that's right. why I think the word faith is somewhat nebulous, and especially in some of the modern Jewish translations, they've gone to the word trust. Right. I'm glad you mentioned it because it triggered that thought on my mind. And that describes a relationship with a divine being where you are entrusting your whole life, your family's lives in the direction of that divine being who loves you and wants to teach you the right way to live. Right. You believe it enough to be able to act upon it. Right. You have to not only believe it, but it has to be something you act upon. And that's the difference between uh, living faith and dead faith biblically. Right. You uh, had talked earlier about uh, this sense of a moral construction that's built on sand. You know, they, they, have, they have nothing. That's what we're trying to do is build on the rock. You know, the Bible talks about Jesus Christ as a rock. And how do you do that? Well, part of that is establishing a relationship there. It's that you have cause to believe. Like, for instance, I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, not just because I read it in the Bible, but because I've examined it, I've examined the historical evidence best I could, I've looked at the arguments for, and it's very convincing. I believe those men, the disciples, who are willing to be tortured to death, uh, as opposed to just confessing, yeah, this guy really didn't rise from the dead, we don't know what we're talking about. No, they, they were willing to die horrible deaths, because indeed what they saw was this man had lived again. There's all these reasons, I won't go into all of them, we, I would recommend you read our materials on such things, but they had cause to believe in those things, and so they establish a relationship with that being, and they put their trust in what he says, which in the end only begins to generate its own evidence as well, as you see these things working. You know, one life. of the things we have to prove when we prove God is not only the existence of God, um, but that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is God. People can really look at scientific evidence, I think, and we won't go into all of that today, and decide that, yes, that must have been a creator um, for mathematical reasons or things of that nature. But what about the proof that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of this book here, of the Bible, that he is God, he is the creator, and he is the one who has the salvation of humanity in, in his hands and has a plan for us. And that's the next step that people have to take it to. And there are many things that can prove that to us as well. Right. You know, sometimes I wonder if some, some of our, again, atheist friends out there, that part of why they don't want to take the first step to even <coughs> open their minds to the possibility that there is a God is because they fear that might be the second step. You know, that if there is a God, then he might actually be this one I keep hearing about on and off who says that, 
I can't just have sex with my girlfriend before we're married, you know, and I can't, I'm not saying they're all sex maniacs or something, but uh, who say that there actually might be some sort of consequences in my life. And this world, kind of like the nuns and such we read about, it seems like there's a desire for a religiosity that makes us feel good, but doesn't obligate us in any kind of way. Mm -hmm. A God to whom they are answerable. That's right. where it would lead. And one reason people uh, hold back uh, you referred to our literature earlier. We have a similar article by Mr. Richard Ames, one of our telecasters. And he goes into proof number six of God's existence, answered prayer. Now here is where we get into uh, a realm that atheists, even agnostics, cannot understand and cannot uh, disprove. But when a person has made, uh, established a rela relationship with that God, and those prayers are answered, and that person knows that's from God, it solidifies their trust, their trust in that being. Mm -hmm. So it's not just scientific evidence. We have lots of different realms that can go into that. It has to do with a personal relationship. And in number seven, Mr. Ames brings out, is a way of life that works that your life is transformed when you have faith in Christ and you know it works because you've seen it in action. Mm -hmm. Right. I, you know, I've, I've said before that if for some reason God didn't exist and I was just completely bonkers, all the evidence I've seen was somehow made up by aliens uh, that were just intent on deceiving me about all this, then it is the most uh, wonderful and amazing uh, confusion I've ever had because it has been a blessing to my life. It's, uh, it's given me a path to walk that has been enriching and satisfying uh, that, uh, yeah, you know, uh, more mistakes should be so wonderful. It is a way of life that truly does work, which in the end is a testimony to that God because who could have figured all this out? Who that many thousands of years ago could have outlined a way of life that works to this day, that just fits with our, our design and our mm -hmm. warp and woof. Don't, don't forget about one more big one. Um, you know, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our God, says that he tells the end from the beginning, and everything that he said will happen, will happen. If there's such a thing as prophecy, the implications are enormous. Right. And, then, and God even says that. He says that He declares the end from the beginning, and that is part of the evidence of who He is. We on Tomorrow's World, if you're familiar with our television program, if not, find out where that television program is airing on your television and your station. You can cert certainly check out on our website, tomorrowsworld.org. But we talk about prophecy a lot, and those are one of the great proofs of God's existence, is who else can actually declare what's <laughs> going to happen before it happens and it actually does happen, which, thank you, I don't know if you did that on purpose, uh, Mr. Wakefield, but that does allow me to transition to our fourth topic today, which concerns the nuns. Back to the nuns. Those who are casting aside any kind of, uh, uh, if you will, some sort of denominational restraint, trying to open their borders in terms of, uh, well, I don't want to believe in any particular God, I like to, to keep things free and open. We do know, in fact, we talked about it. You can go back and see the archive of, I think it was last week's program, this ecumenical movement, this desire, often uh, the Catholic Church is pressing it, others press it, that all religions, you know, we should just come together. Somehow we should all be one, uh, that so many of our differences are really just illusory. How am I, we know in, the, in prophecy, again, talking about that, we know there will rise this religious figure, uh, the Antichrist, uh, the false prophet, who is going to bring the world together in one particular religion, at least unified, and what he needs to have it unified to achieve the ends there of the end time. How do you think this current sentiment that we see in society, this uh, rise of the nuns, might feed into such a scenario or, or not? What, what's y'all's take on that? 
Well, let me just say this. In the ecumenical movement, all roads lead to Rome. Hmm. And uh, I think people need to remember that, that the um, Roman church, the woman there is going to call her daughters in, and she's doing it now. We're seeing things like the new evangelism, where there's a lot of outreach going on um, um, by, the, by the Catholic Church, and we're seeing a great deal of ecumenicism where people are reuniting with those hmm. people that they have split off from in the past. I think there's a, a very uh, large need for um, uh, a genuine faith, a genuine feeling of religion in the mm-hmm. secular world, and that leaves this void, leaves a, a vacuum that someone can come into right. very easily if they can present something that um, works for the world and perhaps uh, for the world economy, for the world peace. We can see all of these things happening, particularly if it's accompanied by miracles, as Revelation 13 says will happen. Hmm. We've gone through a wave of secularism in the West but religion is growing in the world. Mm-hmm. And I quote an article by Carol Kuruvilla in which she says, religion is growing around the world and in this country, especially among non-white people. Global Christianity is now primarily non-white. The new multi-ethnic evangelicalism and Pentecostalism will not fit into the neat American left or right categories. Mm. That's just here. But overseas, uh, even the large share of People that profess Christianity are the uh, non-white people of Africa, Asia, Latin America, and other religions are growing as well. I mean, Islam, the quickest, uh, fastest growing religion now. So religion still draws people. And uh, prophecy has a lot to say about a particular one religious individual who will do some things that will attract them. Right. That's it's going to sound like a dumb analogy, but just ask my family. I am very good at dumb analogies. That if you, if you eat something spicy, ah, oh, and so your mouth is burning and it's really hot, that often it's good to take a drink a glass of milk uh, or even a, bite a piece of cantaloupe. Not medical advice here on Tomorrow's World Now, just so you know. But still, uh, some sort of bite of something like that will actually soothe that because what happens is the spicy molecules, the molecules that cause that sensation, they lodge in various uh, sensors in your mouth. And when it comes to cantaloupe or milk, that happens to have uh, proteins or fatty molecules, those molecules that are of similar shape that can actually displace those in your mouth. Um, And so it makes me think, you know, even for those who have some sort of a false belief that's very strong, that any kind of power wanting to come along and kind of pull them away into this ecumenical movement would need to displace some of those strongly held beliefs. Whereas if they're not there, if there's nothing there, if there's a void... People still do long for the spiritual. Even the Bible says that God has placed eternity in our hearts. We do long for for something of the divine, for something of the eternal. But if it's just fuzzy, then it's not going to be satisfying. And you have someone come along, like uh, one of you mentioned, I think it was you, I think both of you might have, someone calling, doing miracles, calling fire down from the sky, and you bring the skeptics along. And like I think of the amazing Randy, he's always one of my, my favorites, comes along and points out and says, well, I don't know what to say. That's a real miracle. I can't disprove that because it's truly supernatural. How many of those people that had that fuzzy place are just going to be brought right along and say, man, this is my guy? Because it's tangible. It's something right. they can it's see. Right. Whereas faith can be kind of fuzzy in people's minds. This is something I can actually see. Right. They would say, look, all that stuff talked before was philosophical, whatever, but this literally happened right in front of my eyes. Yeah. 
I remember the oohs and ahs during the eclipse. Uh, it was it was fun. Hope some of you out there watching us got the chance to see the eclipse. But imagine the oohs and ahs when someone is literally performing miracles on maybe live television in front of vast audiences. Mm -hmm. uh, I think they would be quite quite open to that. Mm -hmm. It can fill a vast empty place that currently exists in secular society. No, it can. In fact, uh, on this particular topic concerning the ecumenical movement, concerning the uh, Antichrist, uh, it's confusing a bit sometimes with the Beast of Revelation. I'd encourage all of you watching, we do have a backlog of programs, but in particular, last week we addressed this very topic. Now, don't go now. You don't want to leave us, even though we're about to wrap up here pretty soon. But still, do go check it out. Last week's program was on the ecumenical movement. Uh, the Catholic Church talked a lot about that, the Antichrist and the Beast Power, so do go check that out. As for us, I think our time is coming to a close. Uh, so thank you, Mr. Frank. Uh, thank you, You're Mr. Welcome. Wakefield. Appreciate both of you. All you guys there in the control room, thank you very much for keeping us alive and strong and thank all of you. Uh, these will be recorded, and they'll be kept online and available to you. So even afterwards, if you still have questions, we may not be live anymore, but our faithful crew goes and harvests those questions and collects them for us, uh, and we should be able to perhaps even address those in a future program. So from all of us here at TWNL, thank you very much. Look forward to seeing you next week.